This is an ABC podcast. This is The Conversation Hour with Jonathan Kendall on ABC Radio. Now, we've had our fair share of natural emergencies lately, and houses have been in the firing line. And I mean, so should we have stronger rules about where you can and can't build? There's been this big focus on bushfire risk in Victoria, but the June 9 storms showed that we need to be thinking about more than just fire because the storms left more than 200,000 households and businesses without power statewide and the SES had nearly 10,000 calls for help. You probably saw pictures on the news of beautiful big old gum trees that fell over on top of houses. Well, nearly one month on, You're going to hear from planning experts today who say this is the wake-up call the state government needs to strengthen laws about where you can and can't live. So do we need better rules about living in these areas? Or should the people who move there just come to terms with the fact that their home could be destroyed one day? Is that just part of living in the bush? So for you today, should buildings be banned in parts of Victoria because of storm or fire risk? On ABC Radio, this is The Conversation Hour with Jonathan Kendall. been an incredibly busy night, so we're up over, and it's climbing by the minute, but over 5,500 calls into SES for assistance. Some of those hardest hit areas, the Dandenong Ranges, so our Lilydale unit alone have had over 770 calls for help, and our Emerald unit now over 500. Also, the Macedon Ranges, the Mornington Peninsula, our Frankston unit have had 370. So really widespread, a combination of trees down, uh, building damage, and uh, now starting to see some impacts of flooding across West Gippsland as well. That's Jamie Devonish from the SES talking there on the 10th of January, so the morning after those big storms came through. Amber Williams is a resident of Kalorama in the Dandenongs. She and her partner and two kids and their animals were in the heart of the storm on the 9th of June. They had to huddle in one room to get through it all. Morning, Amber. How are you going? Nearly a month on. Hi, Jono. We're doing really well. Thank you. Oh, good, good. Um, So what was it like that night? Really scary. It was definitely one of the scariest nights of my life. Um, yeah, we didn't sleep at all. It was keep my, my oldest daughter, she's nine. I was trying to keep her calm. She was quite frightened and we just were waiting for the sun to come up so that we could get out there and see what damage was done and see if anyone needed help. So despite all of that and despite that really difficult experience, um, would you? I mean, do you like living there? I mean, do you think you you should be able to keep on living there, and more people should live in the Dandenongs? <laughs> um, I wouldn't have it any other way. We have, we are not going to move. We absolutely adore it here. Um, do I think more people should move up here? No, <laughs> I don't. I like that it's uh, less populated up here on the mountain, and I think everyone would agree with that. Um, I don't think it should put people off moving up here. I think there's risks everywhere that you could live. And this is just something that you have to to deal with. You know, we, we have all this beauty and this wildlife around us and the risks are bushfires and falling trees, but it's worth it. It's worth the risk. 
Yeah, and there's similar um, texts to that coming through. Um, this one says, uh, yes, people should be able to live wherever they want, but within reason, I've lived in a high fire risk for 41 years with luckily no fire. It would be a real shame if we'd never been allowed living here. So it sounds like something you've just come to terms with. But, I mean, of course, it's a, it's a bushfire risk area as well, Amber. It is. But, you know, like I said, you, you learn to live with that and you just have to prepare. Um, I think we all live here knowing that one day we might lose our homes. But... Um, you, if you prepare really well and uh, something that I'm working on now is becoming more minimalist, less sentimental. That's something that my neighbours who have lost their houses have been talking about and then, then they weren't sentimental people and they're, you know, they're not, um, I can't find the words here, but, you know, they're doing okay. They'll rebuild their house and uh, they're not, they haven't, they haven't lost a lot of sentimental things. So do you find yourself watching the weather forecasts, you know, especially over summer when it's bushfire season and also in winter for big storms like the one that came through nearly a month ago? Yeah, glued to the weather, absolutely. February is, is probably the scariest month. Uh, I don't look forward to summer at all. Is that how you want to live, though? I mean, you must have some real benefits of living there if you're prepared to put up with that risk. Yeah, autumn. Autumn is my favourite season. <laughs> it's the most beautiful time to be here. If we can get through summer, then we have we are rewarded with the most beautiful season of all, autumn. Uh, winter is chilly, but it's beautiful. It's full of fog and mist, and it's just gorgeous. And then spring comes alive again. So, yeah, if we can get through summer, we've got three other beautiful seasons at Fair enough, Amber. Thank you for that. The, the line is giving way on us, so I'll let you go. But um, thank you for having a chat with us and, and best of luck. Thank you. Uh, and on the text line, there's quite a lot here. Um, this one says, oh, this is from Lisa. It says, it's your own private property. People should be able to build on it. Those people can be paying up to triple the amount of insurance compared to the average Joe. Um, but Kat says, I think there should be requirements in places like this to ensure safety, like uh, double glazed windows. People need to be aware and understand the risks of building in these areas. For Joe, uh, and I was asking the question, should people be banned from living in certain parts of Victoria because of storm or fire risk? For Joe, it's a big no. He says the occupants should be made to sign a waiver that they understand that authorities believe the area is dangerous for a specified reason and they take full responsibility. They should then have to supply that to their insurance company and pay the exorbitant premiums or not be insured. And if not insured, no handouts when something happens. So what do you reckon? Is that fair? Peter is in Montrose. G'day there, Peter. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm a, I'm a registered planner and certified practicing planner with the Planning Institute of Australia. And um, any comments about restricting builds hasn't been put to members, so I don't think it's any, there's any validity to it. But the issue for me is that there's just too many controls and you're not able to make your, your house fire safe. For argument's sake, the native vegetation overlays that are placed on a lot of properties forbid you from, from taking any action to make your place safe. And that's ridiculous because most people in country areas have planted trees for nature and for, for um, you know, their own amenity. 
And uh, then once the tree gets to a certain size, they're not allowed to trim it, let alone cut it down. And it's ridiculous. We, we, we need less restrictions on what we can do on the land that we've paid for and we maintain. See, this is a really interesting uh, pinch point here because there's a section in the Victorian planning scheme that says that new population growth should be directed to low-risk areas and that um, this was a new clause brought in after Black Saturday is that the protection of human life should be prioritised over all other policy considerations. Do you think that plays out across the Victorian planning scheme? It's intended to, but it's... it's um it's a bias towards not taking any proactive uh, work on your property. As I said before, I've got a, a lifestyle uh, property and the overlays prohibit me from removing any of the... Um, trimming back any large trees. It prohibits me from removing trees. It prohibits me from even removing fallen timber from large trees. So I'm put in a position where I can't make my place safe because of the overlays imposed by the state government. Mm. Peter, thank you so much for your call. And I reckon you've encapsulated one of the, the real uh, points of tension in the Victorian planning scheme. Uh, let's have a chat with Sharon in Horsham now. G'day, Sharon. What do you want to say? Hi. Um, look, I only heard half of uh, that previous conversation. Um, fallen trees don't really promote embers. Um, I come at, come at it from a different angle. I think we largely should be allowed to um, rebuild in some of these bush areas. The 30-metre clearing that was recommended after um, some of the bad fires I think is really terrible because you don't go and live in the bush to then clear the bush away. I think environmentally that's very unsound and as our population grows, we're just going to have no bush left. What I do think is that our planning and our building codes, so council regulations, federal um, building codes, they really lack a lot when it comes to both floods and fires. Um, I think it should be mandatory to have bunkers in some of the very, very high-risk areas. You should not be allowed to rebuild without um, building um, bunkers, which should be approved. Um, things like triple-glazed windows are standard in Europe, but we, you can't even get them here. Um, sure. Yeah, Sharon, thank you for your thoughts. Some really interesting points there. And it's, it is interesting to note that after Black Saturday in the Victorian planning scheme, so they put this line in, the protection of human life should be prioritised over all other policy considerations. So how does that sit with you? Because, I mean, we've already had people texting through saying, look, if you choose to live in the bush, this is what you sign up for. This is, this is what life in the bush is. Uh, Belinda is in Sassafras. Morning, Belinda. Good morning. Good morning. What did Cold you want to say? and wet up here, thankfully, today. <laughs> Cold and wet and beautiful, probably. <laughs> Absolutely stunning. I've got about 12 metres away from a beautiful 80-metre mountain ash that, thankfully, that poor lady decided to stay up on the night. <laughs> <laughs> so you just see it as, as part of living in the bush. I mean, you accept the risk, do you? We do accept the risk. I believe that these short but incredibly intense and highly uh, publicised through the media really do, um, they do sort of undermine the fact that when you live in the cities, there are risks that you face every day. Um, these ones, they're very, very, of course, um, traumatic 
but they actually don't happen that, that often. So that's um, one thing that we do need to, to keep in mind. And as Amber said, yes, we do have those risks. They can be quite traumatic, but those risks can also, in a different form and maybe less publicised, happen every day in, in the city. The one thing I think that Amber uh, hadn't also mentioned is that these bush areas aren't necessarily... People don't necessarily move here because they just love the nature. A lot of these people aren't able to afford the city. These areas are generally um, inhabited by people that may not have a high socioeconomic, high financial income to be able to live anywhere else but in these bush areas. So uh, to say if you choose to live in these areas, I think it's a more complex uh, situation than just basically you're choosing it because you like to live there. Um, Mm. It's more complex than that. Although it's probably getting pretty expensive out around Sassafras these days, is it? (laughs) <laughs> well, the insurance, certainly the premiums to live here have definitely gone up. Certainly after the lockdowns, we saw some incredible sales that went through the roof. So a lot of people who are wanting tree changes. I remember the day after the storm, I it took me an hour to walk up to Sassafras, not because we're far away from Sassafras, but from the sheer number of trees that we were trying to negotiate over. Mm. And I found... Uh, my neighbours, my new neighbours of two months who had moved from the city and they were sitting up waiting for a bus, um, unbeknownst to them realising that yeah. 200,000 other people were without power and, of course, <laughs> the highway was shut in every direction. I had another neighbour who, again, had only moved up six months before from the city from a lovely, beautiful Turak, and I watched as her four-wheel drive slid sideways down a hill as she was trying to escape her driveway with the tree across it, unknowingly that within 15 metres of any direction there were trees down around her. Wow, and what a a transition moving from Turak to Sassafras. Belinda, thank you so much for having a chat with us about that. Belinda says this is just what you sign up for when you move to a bush area is you have to understand the risks. What do you think about that? Or or should we be just banning people from living in certain parts of Victoria because maybe the bushfire risk is too high, maybe the storm risk is too high, maybe there's a risk from flooding that is just too high. What do you think? On ABC Radio, this is The Conversation Hour with Jonathan Kendall. Lovely to have your company today. And we're talking about whether there should be more regulation, whether there should be more red tape. Now, I know (laughs) what people will think about that when they hear the words more red tape. But, I mean, I know there are some rules already around living in a bushfire overlay, and that can mean that your local council can pretty much say to you, uh, you can't build here, you can't build here, just because the bushfire risk is too high. Um, Should we be doing more of that? Should we be saying, look, you just can't live here because these trees are too important, they're too precious, and you're going to live too close to them and then they could fall over onto your house? What do you reckon? Kate says, it's a personal choice to live on the mountain, but let's not forget emergency service people put their lives on the line to reach and rescue those who become trapped. Pete in Ballarat says, allowing people to build in areas that have a history of flooding that were once not allowed brings more revenue in rates. Uh, thank you for your thoughts. Dr. Dan Metcalf is a director of the, of, uh, at the CSIRO, uh, Oceans and Atmosphere. G'day, Dr. Dan. Good morning. Should we just be saying, look, this area is a no-go zone for, for building and, and living because it's just too dangerous because of risks of storms and fires? Oh, so, so um, as a scientist, I wouldn't be uh, recommending 
I wouldn't be making policy. But what I would be doing is saying, let's make sure that we have all of the data so that we can make informed choices. And those choices really are about uh, understanding the risks that we face, how we can mitigate those risks, um, and, and what we're willing to invest to help support that mitigation. And we had people texting through earlier saying, look, this is... We, we knew about uh, intensified storms and um, stronger storms that were coming. These have been predictions on the table uh, for quite a while. So how do we plan for that into the future? So the, the, what we can do, um, so from CSRO, my colleagues in the Bureau of Meteorology and, uh, and, and others, um, what we can do is make sure that we uh, interpret all of the data that, that we've got from historic events uh, we build scenario models that help us understand how the climate's likely to change and what the what that means. So we, we've got a long history of, of extreme events in Australia. Um, we're, we're renowned for them. But the models suggest that we're going to see changes to the intensity of those events, their duration, uh, where they hit, and potentially their frequency. And so what we can do is, is help councils or building regulators or, or, or other or communities make decisions about where are they likely to see changes? Are those changes of such a magnitude that they become insurmountable? Or are there other resilience um, investments that they can make to, to help uh, secure their properties, their livelihoods, their security in, in the areas that people want to live? So knowing what you know and looking at all of the data around more intense bushfire seasons and more intense storms and all that sort of stuff, would you choose to live in the bush? Um, I would be completely happy to live in the bush. Um, and, and I've spent much of my time in Australia living in far north Queensland in cyclone, uh, high cyclone risk areas. But whilst living in the bush, then I make sure that my property is resilient and that I manage the vegetation around it to reduce the risk of bushfire or reduce the risk of cyclones dropping trees on my property. So there's a, there's a happy medium here. There's a balance that we can strike, you reckon? Yeah, and this is all about perception of risk and how you manage it. So, so if you live in an area where you're likely to face intense bushfire risks, then making sure that your property is resilient to bushfires and you manage the vegetation around it or the flammable material around it, give you um, an understanding of, of, of what your plan is uh, and, and, and working with your local councils, with CFA or, or, or other groups uh, to help inform that, give you um, greater comfort that you're in a position which is defendable um, and, and perhaps that's a that's perhaps a North Queensland perspective, not a Victorian perspective, uh, given what we saw last year. But, but really, yes, I think it's about understanding the risks you face and how you manage those risks. Mm, uh, fair enough. And we did uh, give the CFA the opportunity to be part of the conversation this morning, um, but they said they didn't have an appropriate spokesperson. So look, thank you for having a chat with us, Dr. Dan Metcalf, Director of CSIRO Oceans and Atmosphere. Dorla is in Gisborne. G'day, Dorla. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are about gum trees and, and perhaps the places where people live and also the councils. They tend to build... They tend to put gum trees along the street trees and 
They're the most dangerous tree. If you look at the trees in the dandenongs that have come down, they'll be gum trees. Yeah, but they're beautiful, the... Dola. They're beautiful big old trees and they're, they're native. They look great. I know, that. I know they're native and the dandenongs are beautiful and I used to live in Upway, so I have lived in the dandenongs. But if you look at a tree... The canopy at the top is much bigger than the root system. And when the winds hit the trees, well, the law of averages is going to blow it over, particularly if we had heavy rain and the ground is soft. Mm, Yeah, fair enough. Thank you for your thoughts, Dola. Dola reckons it's about the type of tree. Uh, Richard is in regional Victoria. Morning, Richard. What are you thinking? Yeah, good morning, Jonathan. Um, I... uh had an application for a planning permit um, rejected by uh, my council a couple of years ago. And now I'd actually got the CFA uh, out to my property to, to recommend uh, in the general area of my farming property um, how much defendable space I needed and, uh, and uh, the bell rating of 29. And, um, and just problem, for, for people who might not know what bell stands for, it's bushfire attack level, is it? I believe so. So yeah. it determines how much, uh, you know, safeguards have to be built into the design of the home, whether it be the double glazing or the yep. cladding materials, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, the problem I have is I don't think some councils have a proportionate and common sense approach when it comes to the changes to the uh, planning scheme post uh, Black Saturday because... Um, what they did was they just said to me that, look, you've got about um, 20% of your properties not covered by the bushfire management overlay, and that's where you have to build. Mm. They didn't assess uh, my application on its merits, and so it went to VCAT, and, uh, and the VCAT member said, look, you've got to assess the application on its merits. It should have been referred to the responsible authority, which is the CFA, and they never did that. So it cost me a lot of delays and a lot of money obviously and I just felt the council weren't reasonable. Yeah and it sounds like that is you know one specific example there of of ending up um, in a disagreement with the council around the interpretation of the Victorian planning scheme. Uh, Adrian is in Colac. Morning Adrian. Hello. Hello you grew up in Warrandyte. Yes I grew up in Warrandyte. Warrandyte's one of the most dangerous fire traps in Victoria probably along with the Dandenongs. And, you know, we, we dealt with that. We're right next to the state forest, and we dealt with that by building a fire bunker as part of the, the house. So, you know, I, so I'm, I'm in favour of letting people live where they want to, like let them live in the, the bushfire zones, and they've got a choice. They can insure, not insure, but, you know, get a, get a, a bunker. And, you know, and, and if we start talking about removing vulnerable properties from the, the equation, you know, if the King Lake Fire Complex back on Saturday Black Saturday had started 50 kilometres further west, that fire would have, rather than, you know, St Andrews and those sort of towns which are sort of sparsely populated, would have gone into Greensboro, Eltham, um, Diamond Creek. There would have been thousands upon thousands of probably lives lost, you know. So you're talking huge chunks of the, the peri-urban environment that would have to get taken out of the equation or, mm. or have all their trees removed because they're full of gum trees and they're the ones that burn on those extreme days. So, Adrian, that brings us to our question today. Should we just ban people from living in certain areas? No, I think it's... No, not at all. I think people... You've got to give people the, the, base, the basic information about, like, here's the risk, make your decisions, and here's the best way you can mitigate that risk. And, you know, we, we've, we've got to actually be honest about looking at how we manage fires. If we, if we don't reverse global warming, we, we won't be... 
this stuff just keeps getting worse and worse and worse to the point where our society will get ground down literally to ash from mm. the amount of fires. So I think we're talking about dealing with the, the, the symptoms rather than the causes, and we need to get serious about the cause before we start saying to people, you can't live here. That's Thank you, Adrian, for your thoughts. Adrian in Colac, Peter Fillmore is uh, with the Otway Forum. He's the secretary of that group. He lives in Apollo Bay. Morning, Peter. Good morning, John. You're dealing with sea level erosion or coastal erosion there. Yes. Um, Apollo Bay is the most southern town on the Australian mainland. It's the opening of uh, Bass Strait, or Bass Strait, the continental shelf, it's only about 50 kilometres away. We get massive swells which are accelerating the erosion all along the coast as well as climate change, sea level rise. So how do we plan for that? Well, it's interesting. The the latest state um, policy, the Marine and Coastal Strategy, March 2020, it's using a figure of 80 centimetres, and that's from the IPCC, but that's a figure from 2008. Now, here we are 13 years later, and it's moved on. It should be at least 1.2 and uh, like um, the previous caller just said, we're, we're not looking at the big problem, which is the continual acceleration of burning fossil fuels. Mm. So I guess it's easier to try and uh, legislate around that instead of tackle this huge problem, which everyone around the world is, is coming to grips with. Um, would you build uh, on the water in Apollo Bay, do you think, Peter, if you, you know, if you're going to build again? Uh, no, I certainly wouldn't. I've, I, I've actually moved in from the bush because um, the bushfire risk is just getting so extreme and I do live a bit close to the coast now, but I'm at least 20 metres above sea level. Luckily, there's not too many um, housing estates sort of at that sea level, not too many houses. I do know people um, that have moved off those low-lying ones, and, but I still know people are, buy, are still putting up houses on those low-lying areas. Yeah, right. Okay. And are people worried about it? I mean, I'm broadcasting from sail in Gippsland and we've got, uh, you know, significant coastal erosions in places like Inverloch and there have been lots along the 90-mile beach that have been yep. said, you know, you can't build there because uh, because of potential flooding and, and just they're too coastal and too sandy. Um, so are people worried about it or is it just a risk that they're prepared to live with? No, no, they are worried. They are worried and... Uh we're particular, but like like the bush situation, if people really want to live there, you can't stop them within within the planning laws. But what a lot of people are more concerned about, there's still there's still councils out there approving developments on public land which are well and truly within the the coastal risk zone. We've got a walking track proposed, five million dollars, just outside of Apollo Bay, which goes right through the coastal hazard zone. It's the council's just not listening. Hmm. Although I imagine, like most regional areas, you would be experiencing an influx of people moving from the city and wanting a bit of a, a sea change to move down there. So h- how are you dealing with that? Because I reckon there'd be pressure on, on Apollo Bay to grow. Well, there is, but uh, we've either got... There's about 100 blocks left, possibly, to build new houses. The rest of the land down here is either flood-prone or it's quite mountainous, as you're probably aware, as it comes right down close to the coast, so it's slip-prone. And so you can't build there. So we actually are quite limited on how many new houses we can put in down here. 
Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens into the coming years because it's such just, just such a popular area along the, uh, the Great Ocean Road. Peter, thank you so much for a snapshot of what's happening in Apollo Bay. Peter Fillmore, Otway Forum Secretary who lives in Apollo Bay, has done for 45 years and loves it but reckons there needs to be uh, no more infrastructure built in Apollo Bay because of coastal erosion. Professor David Kennedy knows a thing or two about that. He's a geomorphologist at the University of Melbourne. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Jono. Now, I mentioned Inverloch. I'm not far from Inverloch where I'm broadcasting today from Sale. And uh, over the past few years, I've been reporting on the, uh, the coastal erosion as it creeps closer and closer to the surf club there. And it looks as if, looks as if eventually that surf club's going to end up in the drink. So what do we do? <laughs> I wish I could say do this. Um, it really, a lot of it really depends, I think, on what you actually want to protect. And I think just listening to what, what you were just talking about before of assets in the current hazard zone, I think that's the fundamental issue that we've actually got round on the coastline. I mean, within all environments, I mean, we've got our current hazard zone, we've got current storms. And we've got changes with those in the future. But, yes, that poor surf club is definitely right on the beach at the moment. Mm, yeah, and I guess you would be a bit nervous if you're a member because I don't know how many metres there are between it and a bit of a sand wall. But um, And there are, you know, there's certain things that can be done. I think they're talking about putting in wet sand fences and big sandbags and things like that. But are they kind of just Band-Aid solutions? Well, it depends. I mean, the... It's sort of a, that balance between, I mean, the fundamental issue is the surf club is really probably on the active coastal zone. So it was already built very close to the, I mean, it wasn't when it was there. I mean, it was about 50 metres back. But we've been looking at the, uh, that dynamics of the, that coast rounded interlock, and that coast has been moving backwards and forwards hundreds of metres over the last 50 or so years. So the surf club, although when it was built, was stuck behind the dunes, it was actually really right on where one of the more stable shorelines were. So, yes, so they've been trying various bits and pieces there. The wet sand fencing didn't really do much. I think it was a very temporary solution. But I was down there actually a couple of weeks ago and there's a nice big sandbag wall now in front of the surf club. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the solutions I think people have been talking about, rock walls, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, the conversation goes on. But it seems to be there's just this real friction between what people want and what they've been used to, i.e., you know, low-level um, infrastructure, so marinas and jetties, and, you know, they like living in the bush, but then we've got this friction between what happens because of the effects of climate change. So, again, what do we do? <laughs> I think the critical thing is that climate change is definitely happening. And on the Victorian coast, it's actually, especially the open coast, it's actually the change in wave direction is going to be the really big driver over the next 50 years. Sea level, not so much. In the bays, definitely. But on the open coast, it's actually the wave direction change. But it's really what you just sort of mentioned, Jono, is what have people got used to? And it really becomes down a balance between... We've currently built in the current hazard zone. I mean, we're still in some areas reclaiming salt marshes for housing developments. I mean, we're in the current hazard zone and then we're going to see that hazard zone change into the future. So a lot of the questions, and I think we're going to have to make some really big calls in some areas because in a lot of instances, we're not going to be able to keep both the infrastructure and the natural assets. And I think in a lot of areas, it becomes down to a question of where are we going to retreat or where are we going to say, no, that house, that building, that road is more important than the beach. And I think there's going to have to be a lot of calls of saying, well, we, we're not going to be able to have both, but 
which one which one is our priority. Mm. And so when are we going to be making those decisions? Over the next 100 years, do you think? I think we're starting to make them now, and Inverloch's a great example of that, that the coast has been allowed to... I mean, it's been moving around. It's been adjusting for the last 10 years. We've lost about 50 or so more metres in front of the surf club. But round in the mouth to Anderson's Inlet, that's built out a hundred, hundreds of metres. So where the erosion had gone previously is now being protected. And that's now the management decision that's been faced right now is really going, well, do we shift the surf club or do we have a beach? And mm. I, we're not really doing it. But a lot of the stuff is actually thinking where we're getting erosion, where we've sort of surveyed right around the coast, is we're still having a lot of legacy effects because our coasts operate over decades, sometimes hundreds of years. So if you look at areas such as Apollo Bay, round in Portland, even in Warrnambool, we're still seeing the coast adjusting to management that was done 150 years ago. Yeah, it takes time, doesn't it? Look, thank you so much for your expertise, Professor David Kennedy, geomorphologist at the University of Melbourne, talking about another threat. I mean, we've spoken about bushfires and storms, but this is coastal erosion. Uh, this text says, Jonathan Locke Sport is the classic no-build area down there. Uh, thank you. Tony says, I live pretty much at sea level in a small town called Silverleaves on Phillip Island, where wedged between Western Port Bay and an inlet by literally 100 metres. I'll be moving from here within the next 10 years. There's no avoiding what's going to happen. So Tony reckons he can see the writing on the wall there. Um, Caroline in East Bentley says, Hi there, Jonathan. Yes, there are areas where development should be prohibited. Many of the areas posing the greatest safety risk to humans are also areas where further encroachment on wildlife and ecosystems should be stopped or the very natural environment that people say they appreciate will be gone forever. Thank you for that, Caroline. John is in Tolonga South, is it, John? I hope I got that yeah. right. Yeah, Tolonga South in the Brightshire. Oh, yeah, we go. Yeah, Tolonga yeah. South, yep. Yeah. Um, um, what are your thoughts? Well, we've just been through the process of uh, designing and putting a block on, uh, house on a block on two and a half acres and we've got semi-bush and open area. We were given a building envelope and uh, all that to build on and we had got the thing designed and went through the appro uh, approval process right up through planning and then right at the depth of CFA wanted the house moved uh, 19 metres away from the neighbouring... 19... Oh, so, you, so they wanted to move yeah. the footprint of your house 19 metres away, is that right? Yeah, from the neighbouring block, which wow. was a little triangular square. And from that triangular square into the neighbouring block, the nearest tree was 20 metres away. So, you know, you know we were 39 metres back from that. Yeah. But in the process of that, when we pushed the house down along the building envelope, we ended up in a bunch of trees which were two metres away from the house. And the one, and then because we went further back, we had the trees then on the high side on my own block would be potentially falling onto a house. So yeah. we had a real, we had where we had the initial thing 13 metres back, the house was in quite a safe area where none of the trees would have been close to the house except for one which was leaning down the hill. So yeah. the, the problem we had was trying to get the regulators from the CFA, the planning and the council to come on board and actually come on site to make a real decision on it. So and have a look at it. So what happened? Where, yeah, did, you, so where did you end up building your house? We, what we did is we, we rang up the people that were involved in the planning and the process of that and said, look, at the moment we're going to get stuck with this thing in the wrong place. So 
please just send me your final bill and we're going to have to reassess this whole thing. We put it off for two years to think yeah. about it. Um, but we would have gone ahead with it. Um, and, you know, so you're kind of just in limbo now, John. Look, thank you so much for telling us about that, John, at Tawonga Sat. And that's why I was keen to get the CFA on today to discuss some of those issues. Unfortunately, they said they didn't have a spokesperson who could do it for us today. Um, let's have a chat with Fiona on the Mornington Peninsula, and she'll be our last caller. G'day, Fiona. Hello. How are you? Very well. Go ahead. Apparently, I've got to be quick. Um I just wanted to talk about, um, we're talking about things that happened over 100, uh, over 150 years ago, which I'm still trying to deal with. But currently, there is um, climate change on the bay, and, and yet the heads are still being allowed to be dredged and letting more water in and, and accelerating probably what, what is already going to be a problem. And it means the waves of, wave angles have changed and Portsea's now all sandbags and Mount Martha cliffs are eroding and et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of groins being put in along our coastal beaches that, you know, 20 years ago were fine. And yet the heads are dredged and it sort of seemed to have, in my time, it seems to have accelerated everything so much more. Mm. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but it seems to be, you know, it, we haven't got time. It, it's... Things are eroding and a and whole lifestyle is changing down here. So, you know. And that's not the first time I've heard that, Fiona. Thank you so much, um, Fiona, from the Mornington Peninsula, that, you know, this isn't a – this is going to happen in 30 or 50 or 100 years' time. There's already things happening at the moment. So uh, – and it's been really interesting getting your thoughts on that today around how we find that balance. I mean, sh should we just be banning people from living in certain parts of Victoria because of storm or fire – fire risk or coastal erosion risk for that matter and lots of different opinions on that but generally I reckon overwhelmingly on the text line people have been saying look if you move to the country if you move to a coastal area this is what you get this is what you sign up for um, if you have missed any of the conversation today you can subscribe to the conversation hour podcast via the ABC listen app or wherever you get your podcasts and thank you to all of those people who called through we couldn't get to them there was um, there were quite a few so thank you for that you can get in touch with us on the email <laughs> the email um, conversation hour at abc.net.au we love hearing from you with any kind of questions comments thoughts suggestions for shows we could do always good to hear from you on the conversation hour email so that's the conversation hour for today thanks for listening have a good one